Welcome to the Singapore Noodles podcast. I'm Pamelia Chia and every week I speak with people who are keeping Singaporean food heritage alive in their own way. Today my guest is Lloyd Matthew Tan, the writer of the cookbook Daily Nonya Dishes. It is a book that compiles the everyday dishes that are cooked in his Peranakan family. Given that it is Chinese New Year, we also chat about the differences between the way Peranakans and Chinese celebrate this festival in Singapore. I was following you on Instagram and I read your captions. Yeah. And it's really amazing mm. the kind of food that you cook. Like no one cooks like like that anymore, you know? <laughs> okay, maybe basically the reason is uh, a lot of people are not familiar with everyday food. Yeah. Uh, basically, everybody is very, very familiar with the festive kind of food. The reason why I, I wrote the book uh, is that I come to a realization that after my dad passed away uh, and then with the loss of my mom that everything might disappear mm. because uh, everybody has got this like what i mentioned earlier uh, this um, idea that you know uh, the food that the, the the babas or pranakans eat is the festive kind of food that you find in the restaurants which yeah. the restaurants are pushing very very heavily uh, but then there's this unknown range of, of recipes which are basically home-based recipes. So that was a reason for, for the book. And if you, if you look at all the other recipe books, uh, basically it's a combination of both or a full concentration on festive. Mm. Yeah. So uh, I felt that it was time that we come uh, that a book that documented uh, everyday food be be in be out in the market. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. I feel that there is a tendency for us to focus on things that are very impressive or like mm-hmm. things that are celebratory. I mean, whatever cuisine it is, whether it's uh, Italian cuisine or you know Chinese cuisine. Like, I feel that people want to learn things to impress uh, their friends or their yes. family. Um, but I think there's a lot of beauty in the smaller, like humbler kind of dishes, like what you're describing. Yeah. So what are some yeah. of these dishes that you okay. feel have not been celebrated enough? Uh, okay. Things would be, it would be dishes like very, very simple. There's a whole range of, of, of you know, pickles, kind of pickles using fruit-based pickles. Uh, which was not touched in the first volume of the book, but we will, we will touch on that uh, in, the, in the second volume that okay. I'm currently working on. Uh, this is largely now unknown. Uh, the most common that everybody would know would be the pineapple with, with, with cucumber kind of, 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 of pickle, that kind of things, you know. But then there's this uh, fruit-based pickles using mangoes, using uh, rare fruits yeah. you know, or using even, even things like uh, kemias, uh, which is what we call belimbing here. Mm. Uh, I yeah. love belimbing. Yeah, but it's uh, seasonal. You see, a lot, of, a lot of these things are seasonal and yeah. they are very hard to come by. Yeah, yeah, even in our wet markets, right? It's very hard to find belimbing. Um, I was yes. very lucky because my husband's neighbor had a belimbing tree, so I ah, used to we used to pick them and cook with them. Yes, so so these are the, are the things that I felt that 
we should focus on. And and recently, uh, I was I was testing how to go about making homemade homemade chinchalo. Oh wow! Okay, because uh, nowadays nobody makes chinchalo because uh, you cannot get the krill mm. or the or the grago. Mm. So uh, it now with with a little bit of adjustment here and there. It is possible to actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 you know, so that will be also be in the second book. Mm. Yeah. So how do you get all of this information on how to make all these pickles and how to make your own chinchalo? Because from what I know, if you look at the current cookbooks on the market, there are not many cookbooks that really go in depth into what you're talking about. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, recipes, they probably just teach you the easier way of doing things um, because they are catered to a modern audience. So how do you get your yes. information on how to... Okay, uh, partly I, I think I, I would say that I'm very, very lucky. I had my late mom and dad and my, you know, my, my aunts, my grand, my aunties and all that. But a lot of them have passed away and I also have, you know, friends, elderly uh, elderly people in the Pranakan community that are willing to share uh, this information. Of course, uh, uh, certain recipes uh, that, that they share with me, uh, unless they allow disclosure, then it will appear in the book. If not, then it will just remain with me. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of recipes yeah. when it comes to those from a Paranakan household, they're like treasured heirlooms, right? People find it yes. very hard to part with these recipes. So I feel that maybe that has also contributed to the disappearance of these uh, these dishes. Do you feel the same? Yes, yes. Uh, a lot of it has disappeared, mm. partly because of this reason. But I think uh, lately the mindset has started to change and and there are some people who are lucky and are willing to share mm. yeah yes yeah. uh of course uh like what we say cuisine is you know it evolves so if you are if you are talking about differences there are a lot of differences between household yes uh, even though the recipe might be the same nearly essentially the same but then there's this habit of the of the the lady of the house to add in things which she prefer or omit things out. So yeah. I would say that not every every recipe is wrong. Yeah. It's just that, you know, it's family preferences. Uh, I think Pranakan cooking has not reached to that stage like what you call uh, the French or mm. or British where there's a standard, mm. you know, that oh, you must follow these guidelines to come up with this recipe. We have not reached that stage. Yeah. Uh, we are still very, very young in that area. So you see that, you know, no two recipes are essentially the same in every yeah. household. But yeah. at the same time, I feel that um, there is a lot of like young cooks or people who are inexperienced in the kitchen, they feel very intimidated when it comes to cooking these kind of traditional dishes because there are so many gatekeepers. Like the moment you cook a certain heritage recipe or traditional recipe and you post about it online, then people will be like, why you use white pepper? Why you never use black pepper? You know, my ama cooks it this way. You know, why, why are you cooking it differently? So I think 
you know, there's a lot of pride when it comes to this kind of food, even though it's still a very young cuisine. Everybody feels that their mother or grandmother's cooking is the best or is the, is the authentic one. Yeah. But I think uh, for all of us, before we open our mind, mouth, uh, <laughs> Bina Pranakan, we, we should always take a step back. Yeah. You know, and, and think about it. Uh, if if we are going to criticize at every single thing, mm. then it's going to be very very difficult for anybody anybody young who is interested in learning the recipes. Yeah, yes. I think so too. Yeah. It makes it so difficult yeah. to share about the cuisine because I used to work at Candle Nut. I'm not sure if you know Candle mm. Nut in Singapore. Oh yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. So um, I've been hearing from my colleagues that. In the early days of Kendall Nut, when they first started to do things differently, I think there was a lot of pushback because, you know, that's not how my grandmother does this, you know. Why are you yes. playing with uh, grandmother recipes? So I think it's very, very tricky, you know, when it comes to preserving something that people feel very strongly about. So what do you think is the best way for us to preserve this cuisine? If you, if you are going the fusion route, uh, be honest about it and say that this is a take on, mm. on the old recipe. Yeah. Do, not, do not try to push it off as something new, yeah. as something old. Mm. Uh, because uh, then you are actually only lying to the general public. Mm. Uh, lately in Singapore, uh, interestingly, <laughs> I would say it's very interesting that there are two restaurants yeah. that are that are calling themselves as a uh, modern pranakan. Yeah. Uh, you know, where, where, where they, they, they set up a restaurant and it's a little bit fusion. So they don't build themselves as, as authentic. They mm. build themselves as modern pranakan. And, and when you do that, at least I would say the mindset is clear that what you're going into, eat might not be your grandmother's style of cooking. The food might not be the same, but mm. it's, a, it's a take on it. Yes. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Sure you, I'm sure you now know that um, Paranakan food is very much in vogue now. Like a lot of people um, are gaining an interest in this cuisine that has never been seen before. So what do you feel about it? Do you feel like there is enough representation now of Paranakan food in media or in terms of restaurants? I would say that there is, but sadly, I think the, you know, the, the home-based cooking is still not being focused enough. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are still going in for the, you know, the complex uh, in the media that is uh, the usual things. If you, if you look at the reviews of, of restaurants, it's always the same, same things again and again. It's, it's, it's quite, it's quite uh, difficult in a sense that I feel that, you know, uh, when, when you talk to, to anybody about Frankenstein food, when you talk about vegetable-based dishes, the only thing that everybody knows is chap chai. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is a mix, uh, which is a mixed right ingredients cooked with cabbage, soya bean paste. But then there's a whole lot of vegetable dishes, which is hardly seen. Mm. Uh, and 
sadly, a lot of people are not aware of it and which are simpler to prepare. Oh, and okay. Yeah. What are yes. some of these dishes? Okay, this would be rempah-based dishes where, where you use your rempah tite and then you could do it with uh, ladies' fingers, you could do it with uh, brinjols, uh, or even you have, you know, you have your kangkong. Okay, uh, there's a very, very big, uh, you know, we actually, you know, what you find the kangkong that in the, in the Tata stores, that is not pranatan at all. Mm. That is uh, innovation uh, by the, by, by, you know, those uh, shops, the Tata stores, where, where they would fry kangkong in that way. We usually tend to fry our kangkong either with soya bean paste or if not, we will actually fry with the rempah tite. Mm. Okay? Uh, which is actually how it is done in most Ranakan households, not with the sambal blacha and that kind of things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So all this is very much unknown. So a lot of people have this assumption that what is out there, some of it is actually Pranakan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like Pranakan cuisine has a good range of vegetarian dishes or vegan dishes? Because now, you know, a lot of young people, they want to be, they want to, yes. they want to eat less meat. Um, so you see that there are a lot of vegetable dishes in the mm. Pranakan repertoire, but are all of these um, kind of um, rempa based, which has like belacan or like sometimes hebi, things like that? Yes. I think you can, um, uh, okay. Uh, I was just thinking about it. Uh, you know, vegan is something very, very big. Even in Singapore, uh, it's catching up very, very fast. Mm. And I think uh, Pranakan cooking can certainly be, be adjusted to vegan, to a vegan diet. Mm. Uh, by, you, need, you definitely would need to omit certain things out. Uh, okay, if, if blachan can easily be omitted out and replaced with a, a vegetarian version of it, mm. uh, which is available. Uh, yes. Mm. So I think, yeah, it's catching up. There are some restaurants that are doing vegan. Oh, in Singapore? Yeah, in Singapore, yes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I think they're going after a different market or or... There's a market for it which is not fully explored, but I think it's still in the early stages. Uh, that there, there is a little bit difficulty for some of the traditional dishes because uh, you need that richness of the pork or yeah. the or the or the protein part. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, it would need a little bit of fine tuning for it to to easily work. Yeah. For 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 vegan. I was, I was talking to this young um, Peranakan Singaporean. His name is Chrisada. I'm not sure if you know him. Um, on Instagram, his handle is all things Peranakan. Okay, yes. I, 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 I've seen his post, yes. Yeah. yes. So, I was, yeah. so I was chatting with him and um, he shared about um, vegetarian Peranakan food because sometimes of the year, Peranakan's um, tend to go vegetarian like for example when they are celebrating festivals like Nine Emperor Gods right mm -hmm. um, and so he talked about how um, people would make things like vegetarian ota with um, coconut flesh and I thought that was so interesting 
it was like mm-hmm. mind blowing to me. I had never imagined using coconut flesh in that way. So, do you feel like vegetarian cuisine in Peranakan food is like its own category? It it would be in its own category, but of course, uh, I would say you need to have an open mind. If you have, if 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 you are not vegetarian and you go and you you try it out, you cannot expect it to taste like the same thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You mm. you you should not be expecting to 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 taste it the same thing because uh, it would definitely be different. Let's talk about some of the ingredients that you feel are harder and harder to find in Singapore when it comes to making traditional Peranakan dishes. One of the most difficult ingredients that, that are, is very, very hard to come by now would be uh, grago. Mm. Okay. Uh, grago, uh, what we are getting in the market uh, is either from Vietnam Mm. or from Malaysia and all of it is actually it's seasonal mm. and and you know uh, if you take a look at it you realize that it has been mixed with a lot of water and ice to the extent that it's, it has lost its pink coloring mm. so actually the, whatever you're buying is totally tasteless yeah because all the sweetness from the little prawns is lost. Mm. Uh, okay, the other difficult, other difficult ingredients would be all the seasonal produce, mm. uh, things like bobinje, um, uh, the little little fruits that that form part of the pickles and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, even even certain fish. It's very, very hard to come by now in Singapore because I think uh, we, are, we are beginning to follow the Western kind of a lifestyle where some, some parents do not want, uh, are fearful about bones. So everything needs to be filleted down without bones. So certain fish like uh, wolf herring, mm. it is very hard to find in the wet markets nowadays. Mm-hmm. And... and Wolf herring is a very, very delicate fish that, that has got a lot of bones. And, and one of the uh, great things about it is that it, forms, it actually forms part of the bulk of, of the pra, uh, pranakan cooking in, in terms of fish. Uh, and, and sadly, this fish is hardly available. And most of the times when I need it, I will need to place an order. Uh, just to get it, uh, and and this wolf herring uh, actually makes a lovely dish called sambal lengkong, mm. which is actually like a, yeah, like your what's that fish like floss. your kbm yeah, it's a fish floss, yes, and and it's it's hardly seen. Why can't we substitute this with other kinds of fishes? You, uh, you can substitute substitute it with tangiri, which is a Spanish mackerel which is easier to handle because of the way the, the bone structure of the fish is. But somehow, uh, with the wolf herring, it is more delicate. The meat comes out after frying for five, six hours to a crisp. It's more, much more sweeter in the, in the, in the wolf herring. Yeah. Mm. So uh, I am quite a stickler for, for trying to keep it as authentic as possible. So I always try to use 
the actual fish that is required. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I can't imagine how frustrating it must be for you when you go to the market and you can't find the particular fish or when you can't find um, certain ingredients. So, you know, why, why still insist on using all these traditional ingredients? You know, when it's so uh, inconvenient for you. Uh, so what I do is that, like what I told you, I have to plan. I have to plan it in such a way and I actually get the contact numbers of, <laughs> of the fishmonger, the pork seller and, and place an order. Yeah, wow. Like, like if I want to do the pork liver balls yeah. for this Chinese New Year, I had to place the order for the, for the omentum. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, we can continue. The thing is that if you do not want to you know, there, there's this thing about the wet markets. Uh, it's about supply and demand. Yes. If there's no, no demand, all this will disappear. And when all this disappear, the recipes can never be cooked anymore. Yeah. So, so I think it's very, very important that somehow, you know, you, you niggle your favorite butcher or your, mm. your, your fishmonger yeah. and tell them, yeah, there are people who still want this. Yeah. You know? Or not all this will just disappear. Exactly. Yeah, I feel the yeah. same because um, I'm not sure if you know, but I wrote this cookbook called Wet Market to Table that was documenting oh, yes. um, mm. wet market produce. And I realized exactly what you were talking about. Like a lot of these produce, they were fading away from the market because there's simply no demand. For example, Roselle yes. flowers, they're only available at my market in Shunfu on Thursdays and sometimes it's like out of stock because no one requests for this so they just feel like if they were to stock it at their stall you know it would be for nothing so do you feel like it's up to Singaporeans to really support local produce so that we can bring these things back into our markets I think it is very very important Uh, I think the wet markets are facing it a crisis sooner or later they will hit into a crisis because i look at it a lot of the young people they are either buying online or they are going to the supermarkets because it's convenient uh traffic in the wet market is not as packed as it used to be uh as the older generation pass on i i i do not know how the wet markets are going to survive and and if they go, then the supermarkets will not have all these things. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it is very, very crucial before it happens uh, that something is done or, or maybe the government can think about how to... I know it, <laughs> uh, we cannot depend every, every time on the government for everything, but somebody needs to take an interest in it. It's, mm-hmm. it's just like home-based cooking, you know. In a way, COVID-19 forced a lot of uh, ladies back into the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, and, and to start cooking and to start uh, looking at old recipes, which I would say, wow, it's, it's great. Mm. Uh, because all these ladies, you know, they'll be busy, you know, at work or whatever. And then they don't, they hardly cook. Mm. So with, with, with this health situation we are in, 
we see a return to home-based cooking. Mm. But uh, I think another area of concern would be home-based cooking. Mm. Because uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, ladies are working or uh, the men folk are also working and home-based cooking actually suffers because you have hawker centers mm. which can easily feed a family for a certain uh, at a certain price uh, why go through all the trouble of of cooking mm, yeah. exactly and when i hear you talk about about food and about your passion for preserving peranakan cooking i feel very inspired but at the same time i'm just wondering how do you find that motivation to keep going because you know, like everyone else isn't cooking, but here you are trying to keep things as traditional, as authentic as possible. So what gives you that drive? Is it, is it wanting to preserve certain memories? You know, is it the emotions that are attached to the food or what is it? Uh, it's, it's, to, it's, it's to preserve certain memories, uh, memories of my late mom and dad. Hmm. Uh, and also, uh, hopefully, uh, the younger generation in the family would would you know be interested to pick up uh the recipes uh you know uh because everything if if, if not then it will just die away me i i had a very very interesting uh conversation actually with a cousin uh when when my dad uh sister passed away just a few months back we were i was i threw him a question uh in your family, who is the who is the person that cook among all, all your 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 cousins or your siblings or whatever? It seems that he is the only one, mm. and and that shows you know the 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 fall that we are heading into yeah. because in, in every family there's only one. What is going to happen? Yeah. Uh, in in the long run, I agree. Uh, you will definitely see either uh, the death or or just uh, the food will change. Yeah. Because uh, the the young are not used to eating the the old style of cooking. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I I feel you know, very scared about the future of Singaporean food. And I think from the perspective of a younger person, it makes me feel very scared that all my friends, okay, maybe not all, but like most of my friends are not cooking. And when they do cook, they cook food from other cuisines, you know? Um, and I, I really don't know what to do about that, you know? What do you think can be done to encourage people to fall in love with cooking the way you and I have I think you, uh, we, we, we need to, you need to be precise in your instructions. Uh, uh, you, you need to put yourself in the, in the shoes of somebody who has never cooked before. That, that is why uh, somebody told me that uh, daily Indian dishes is very anal. Yeah. The book is very, very anal in the sense of uh, everything is to the key, you know, the, every description. Uh, what, when compared to other recipe books, you might find that one this recipe book might only have four or six lines of instructions to a dish. Yeah. In daily Noya dishes, one recipe sometimes takes one page or even two pages mm. because 
every step is documented mm. down, uh, write down, you know, uh, so that uh, to to somebody that who has never cooked before, there's no guessing. Mm. There's no guessing game in it. The, the instructions are all all mm. down there. Yeah, which actually sometimes I think some people feel that it's scary. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I had this feedback that it's very, very scary, you know. Uh, your babi ta'iyu is so scary uh, because look at the number of instructions down there. Yeah. But I was saying, I was thinking that, oh, it, it was meant to Help. go to the line that somebody who has never, never cooked before. If, mm-hmm. if you have ever cooked before, then you are fine with, you know, your, your processes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what next to do. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I feel that, that that's the dilemma that every cookbook writer faces, right? You want to make things simple, but when you try to make things simple, you know, there are people who complain saying that, you know, there's not enough hand-holding or you're yeah. not teaching all your tips. And then when you try yeah. to be as elaborate as possible, people are intimidated by the amount of steps or how in-depth your, ingred- uh, your instructions are. So I think it's very, very difficult. So how do you feel... Do you feel that traditional cooking, which is tra- traditional Peranakan cooking, which is very, very precise, how does it fit into our modern lives? Because, you know, like what, like what you said, when you make the sambal lengkong, right? You have to fry the fish for so long. So how do you feel like it fits into Singaporean's um, way of living? Okay. Uh, because for me, is that, you know, I rarely get to do this. And when I do this, I tend to do it in big amounts. Like I would do like something like 2 kg mm. of fish. Of course, 2 kg of fish, you're going to take a hell lot of time to fry. But if you scale it down, if, if you scale it down, then of course your frying time would, would be lesser. You see? Uh, but then again, you look at it in this way. It is something very, very rare. Would you want to go through all that trouble of cooking it and, and just make a little bit of it? Yeah. So, uh, so, but somehow, even after adjustment, I've only managed to, to bring it down to like one kg of fish, hmm. uh, which, which would require a little bit of time hmm. to do with the frying. And recently, I saw that you posted about pineapple tarts on Instagram. Mm. And I saw that, you know, you chose to crimp it by hand. Instead of just buying a cutter and just cutting it, why do you insist on doing things that way? You know, now that we have um, all these cutters and whatnot. It was just because I'm not making a a lot. Mm. I, I was not making a huge quantity. I was just making enough for, 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 some for two friends and then a little bit for 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 myself so i decided <laughs> why not just for the fun of it but hell it was hell, it was hell. <laughs> and I, I until now i still feel you know the lattice shape the lattice lines are still too thick i'm not totally satisfied with it I feel like that is a trait of many Paranakan cooks. Like they are so meticulous. It's really interesting because like 
a lot of my Paranakan, you know, the Paranakan cooks or teachers or writers that I know, they are so intricate. You know, everything is done so neatly, the way they cut, the way they crimp. What do you think um, is the cause of this? I mean, is it something in your culture that is so embedded in you to like do something so precisely? I think I think it had to do it had something to do with the lifestyle in the past uh, when a lot of the recipes why why it's so time consuming uh, it was the age where there was no internet there was not much entertainment there were not much diversions you you either stay at home and embroider or you do your castle money or or you had nothing much to do. There was no television, there was no, no, no social media, no nothing. So, and then you live in an extended family where it's not a single family household. So you had a lot of hands, mm. uh, a lot of free hands. So that, that is why a lot of, of the, the work and the recipes uh, require so much uh, detailed attention and time. Of course, I'm not too sure do they make things in such big quantities? Uh, maybe they just make enough for their families to, to eat. So the quantity is not so huge. So that's why uh, the time factor, it is some, something to while away the time and then at the same time just sit down and gossip or chit chat. Mm. Because I, I do remember making kuih banquet with my mom and dad. Uh, my dad would do the rolling and the and the pressing out, and then the two of us would be doing the pinching with mm. the brass. And, and throughout the whole process, we would be chatting away. Yeah. So that, that actually takes away the time, you know, uh, and, and things seem to move faster. But of course, uh, if it's a one-man one man job, mm. you know, then you find that, oh, it's really a lot to do. Yeah. So maybe... Uh, it's best, you know, when you gather the family and and have this experience mm. to to do, and at the same time you get to bond. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, because nowadays with social media, I don't think people bond that much, <laughs> uh, even families. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Chinese New Year. How do you feel? the way that Paranakans celebrate this festival differs from the way Chinese people in Singapore celebrate this festival? Okay. Uh, basically, it's a very, it's Chinese. It's a Chinese celebration. And if you think about, about it, in the past, uh, they, they, you know, the Paranakans were uh, practicing a religion which is Taoist-based and Confucianism. So it's basically what, uh, the the Chinese the other race the other Chinese races were also set, uh, doing so basically it's nearly the same in most things except in little little details. Uh, one of the things is that you know there's this red cloth which is called the chai ki or the ang chai. Uh, in in some families in some uh, Panakan families they they actually they. Uh, most Chinese families, uh, the 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 ang chai would go up on the eve of Chinese New Year after the dinner. But in some Pranakan families, actually, it goes up on 
on what they call the Chapji Gui GC, which mm. is the on the 12th month and on the 24th day. So this year actually it will be the 5th of February. Mm. Okay. So it it coincides with the day when the God returns back to make the report on the oh. household. Yes. So that is actually one of the day in some uh, Baba house, you'll find that they will put it up, the red cloth. Yeah. yeah. So what does it symbolize? Uh, this red cloth is to symbolize that the house is ready uh, to celebrate Chinese New Year. Uh, there is, uh, the family is not in mourning. Mm. Uh, there's no funeral, nothing, and all is well with this family. Yeah, mm. and that they, they are ready to celebrate the new year. Uh, the, the other difference is that, uh, you know, uh, on this day, uh, they would actually, you know, they, they would actually smear sweet uh, things onto the kitchen god yeah. so that he has only got good sweet things to say. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, in, the, in the Pranakan household, in the past, it is not a practice at all. Mm. They don't do that at all. It is only the, the, the Chinese families that, that do this practice. Okay. Uh, this is never, never done in the, in the Pranakan household. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the other difference would be on, on, uh, on Chinese New Year Eve, uh, we have what we call the below or the reunion dinner. Yeah. Uh, for most Singapore Chinese families in the past, you, you celebrate with the steamboat, mm. right? Uh, but for Pranakan households, we actually don't eat steamboat at all because uh, there's this whole altar, there's this whole table of food, which, you know, you would actually do your prayers for yeah. the ancestor, prayer for the gods on Chinese New Year Eve, and that is what you eat, mm. you see? That is what that's been offered and that's what you eat. So we eat our, our, our dishes that has been cooked mm. for, for the prayers. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that uh, one thing which is, is happening uh, in Singapore throughout every, every household is the distribution of oranges. Yeah. Uh, in, in a Pranakan household, uh, it is never a practice in the past. Oh. Okay, we don't. Uh, what, what we tend to do is that, you know, we tend to make things like kueh uh, bangkit, pineapple tarts, or pickles, achar. Yeah. And then we, we do red paper cutouts. Yeah. And then we paste it and we give that away as gifts. Mm. Yeah, we, we don't distribute oranges. Uh, it's something very, very alien. Uh, to 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 a, a family a pranatan family in the past. Mm. Okay, of course now now the the tradition has changed, and you find that everybody is like giving out oranges because this oranges is actually I believe it's a Cantonese custom, mm. which somehow has evolved and then it has <laughs> gone widespread among all the dialect groups in Singapore. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I didn't know that this custom was exclusive to the Cantonese traditionally. I, I'm not too sure, but I think it is, you know, because mm. uh, if, you, if you think about it, I think the word... Orange, come. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Come is Cantonese, right? Yeah. I'm not too sure because my dialect is quite half past six. 
But from what I, I remember, my mother said it was a Cantonese custom. Yeah. The other interesting thing is that on the first day of Chinese New Year, uh, we don't shake hands. We actually go down on our knees, you know? Mm. We go down on our, our knees and we, and, and we pay our respect to our, our pet. If you, you, if you are still practicing your traditional, you know, your, you have an altar, then it will be to the gods, your ancestral altar, then to your living parents. Mm. Uh, you actually soldier, uh, which is go on your knees and then you say, uh, panjang panjang umur, uh, boleh untung untung, eh, boleh kuat kuat. Uh, what it means is that you will have a long life mm. and then, uh, you know, uh, what did I say? Long life, uh, uh, good luck, mm. and then uh, good health yeah. to the elders, which will be seated. And then they will hand you an ang pao. And, and then uh, uh, for, for the ladies, they will give you a long list of advice. Oh, uh, maybe this year you can get married, find a good match. You know, or if you're just a married couple, uh, I, I, want a grandchild, I want a grandchild from you, that kind of things. Mm. You will have something to wish you back in yeah. that sense. So, but I, I think this is something very, very unique in the Pranakan culture, which is not uh, practiced in the Chinese families. Mm. Yeah. What about food? I understand that there are some dishes that you guys prepare during Chinese New Year that is not normally seen in a Chinese household. So, for example, there's something called a penyat, right? Uh, pengat. Uh, pengat. Pengat is actually only on Chap Gome. Yeah. On the 15th day of Chinese New Year, uh, there's a lot of symbolism to pengat because um, bananas, uh, sweet potato, uh, yam, yeah. uh, it has got something to do with uh, so that there will be more family members. Mm. It is, it, and, the, and the, you know, so this is something to uh, wishing well for the families. Yeah. yeah. And I find it so yeah. like, once again, the intricacy of the dish, like it's like a bobo cha cha kind of dish, right? But then, like yeah. the Americans take such pride in cutting everything into into diamond shapes, yes. right? Uh no, for 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 that for that pengat actually it's not diamond shape, no. Uh, the 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 yam and everything must be cut to look like a banana. Oh, banana! Why? It must be. It must be half. Uh, there's a lot of wastage <laughs> uh, because it, it's all supposed to look uniform and it's all supposed to look like bananas, oh. the, the pisang raja. Because the, the, the pisang, the, the banana is part of the, uh, of, of, the Chinese, of the offerings on the table. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yes. you know, I read about, about bananas. I, I wanted to find out if it was auspicious or not auspicious. And some people say that mm. it's auspicious, but some people say that it looks like a begging hand, like when you turn it upside down. Uh, no, you have, need to have two. You need two combs of banana. You don't put one. Uh, you have one, and then on top you put another one. Mm -hmm. You get what I mean? And then you bend it with a red paper. Oh, wow. With a serrated red paper. That is the, that is the way you offer the banana onto the altar table. Oh, wow. It is never one. It must be... It must be two two combs, okay. one on top of the uh, each other. Yeah, the 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 banana is actually supposed to signify, you know, more offsprings, just like the yams and all that. Yeah. yeah. 
so that uh, the the family will have more uh, family members in the future, yeah. in the coming years, and 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 so forth. Mm. Yeah. So this is a dish that you only eat during the Chinese New Year uh, Chinese New Year period during Zakuomei, right? Yes, yes. That is uh, that is one of the one of the dishes, uh, The other thing is that a lot of families nowadays don't have a chap gourmet meal. Mm. Uh, usually, for the Pranakan family, on the fifteenth day of Chinese New Year, the whole family needs to come back again to have another reunion dinner. Yeah, yeah. I think same for it many is. Chinese households as well. I see, but I I don't know. I think it's slowly fading disappearing. Away. This it's fading away. Yes, mm. yeah. So this is one of the aspect of it, lah. So when do the celebrations formally start? I mean, when would you start preparing for Chinese New Year? In the old days, actually, they start uh, preparing uh, on the day after Tangche. Uh, after, after winter the, solstice, uh, right? <laughs> after winter solstice, because there's a lot to clean, right? There's a lot of clean. Uh, if you're living in a big grand mansion, you know, there's a lot of cleaning to do. There's a lot of preparation to do. And then, uh, remember, you know, all, all this flour is not readily available. You would actually need to grind down from the grain itself. So mm-hmm. all this would take a lot of time. So you actually start preparing from there. I would also like to ask about popia. Is it a Chinese New Year dish for Paranakans? No. 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 It is never, never a Chinese New Year dish. I, I do not know how come it has uh, become part of a Chinese New Year dish. Uh, maybe because of convenience or whatever, or maybe it has something to do with the rolling, rolling thing. <laughs> when they say the rolling is supposed to bring more luck, that kind of yeah. thing. I think it's a new innovation, uh, again, from the dialect groups, um, uh, where, where you know, the act of rolling uh, so that the family will have more wealth. But it was never, it was never part of, of, of uh, Chinese New Year. I see. I feel that your your culture is so rich and it's so like there is so much to discover about it. So do you feel like the younger generation of Paranakans are aware of this rich history or this rich culture and do they embrace it? I think there's a lot of emphasis uh, on material culture, uh, which is very, very sad. Uh, there's not enough uh, emphasis or, or or finding out about about the practices and and so so on and it is always very very interesting uh, that you know uh, all this might disappear if if no emphasis is placed on it. What do you mean by material culture? Uh, material culture is. Uh, the collection of, of jewelry, the collection of uh, uh, porcelain or anything which is material. But, uh, you know, uh, even for, for material, like, you know, if you, if, you, if you collect material culture and you do not know the, the, the provenance, why, why this, this particular piece, uh, what is it used for or what... Uh, you know what significance it had it it has to this to the family. Then part of the story is lost. 
Mm. It's just, okay, a porcelain bowl. If you know the story, then it attaches more value to the collector mm. or even to the to the, the person. And then they might not want to release it or, or sell it. Yeah. Because in the end, if you if you think that it's only in terms of money, then it is it is sad. Yeah. Mm. Because there's always a market out there for, for people who who will collect this. But how many people would actually uh, know the provenance of a particular piece? It's just the same thing, you know. Uh, uh, especially what is is very very sad is the is the croissants. Uh, you know, it, it comes as three, right? What's three pieces? Uh, the 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 brooches that they uh-huh. pin on the kabaya, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, when when uh, a elderly lady passed away, usually this they uh, she would actually give instructions for for these pieces to be split up. You know, like if she has three daughters, each one take one. It is a little bit sad in the sense that it will never see its day where all three pieces is been worn by one person. Mm. Yeah. You get what I mean? So, so that is a very, very re- sad reality of the situation. I've never known that jewellery was such a big part of Peranakan culture. Uh, there is a lot about jewellery because uh, in, in, in the aspect of, of jewellery, uh, it has evolved to a stage because uh, there is uh, jewellery that is meant for mourning mm. uh, where it will be silver or silver with pearls. Uh, these are worn during the mourning period. And then there, there is the normal jewellery which is the everyday jewellery which is usually either gold or what. Then uh, if you are very, very wealthy then you would be having the diamond encrusted uh, mm. jewellery. Yeah. So in the in the old days, if, if a family is very, very well off, uh, when they when they marry off the daughter, she would have something like three to four sets. Wow. Uh, which when you say three to four sets, uh, from earring to necklace to everything. That is why when you know when the property is divided, most of the daughters don't get any anything anymore. Mm. Because she actually has taken her share. In, in the jewellery. I'm not sure if it's a par- exclusively Peranakan thing or is it Chinese as well? Because I remember that when my grandfather passed away, he distributed all his rings to his uh, seven children. Uh, partly, this is what you call tanda mata. Uh, it's something that they give away as a sing- for in memory of him. Mm. You see, there are, there are families that do that, no? Where they give away, or even even in in Pranakan families, uh, uh, last time I would remember uh, when a old lady, a grand aunt, or what passed away, she would actually give away her. She would give instructions like, "Oh, this uh, sarong is for who? This uh, kabaya of hers would go to who?" Mm. Uh, it is more for memory, so that they can remember her. Yeah. Mm. So given that Nonya culture or Paranakan culture is so multifaceted, how do you think we can um, offer a truer depiction of what it really is to the general public? Like, you know, recently we've had uh, the Little Nonya, which really kind mm. of 
brought it to the broader consciousness in Singapore, right? And really triggered its whole popularity. Um, so how do you think uh, more can be done? You know, sometimes too much information can be very daunting, right? Uh, so sometimes it would be good to break it down into, into little, little uh, snippets, uh, which could be in a form of recording or video. You know, now this attention span of, of people are not that one. So, so little, little snippets of information. Uh, but of course, we need to find somebody who would be willing to have the time and effort to, mm. to do this presentation. And are you hopeful for the future of um, your cuisine being preserved and being passed down? There will definitely be an evolution and there will definitely be changes. Uh, to, to, because our taste buds definitely will change. It, it would be there, it would remain there, but how authentic it is uh, would be very, very difficult to say. Uh, because from what you can see already now, there's what you call uh, influencers creeping in and, and you can see changes uh, to, to certain recipes, to certain ways of doing things. But as long as the main taste is still there, hopefully it will remain. Mm. It will remain. Yeah. Uh, the most important thing I think uh, would be you need to get the young people to taste, even if they don't like it, at least taste it. Mm. Then you know, you know, then you actually know what it tastes like. So next time, when you go back and look for it, then you know, that is how you keep a recipe alive. Mm. Uh, because you go back and look for it. Mm. If you do not, if, you, if, if everything no, I, I refuse to taste it, I don't like it, then it will just die. Yeah. For a recipe to stay alive, it needs yeah. that. Because yeah. I feel that the taste memory is very, very important. It's what compels yeah. you to, to want to cook it again for your future um, you know, children or whoever to enjoy the same memories as what you had. You know, um, yeah. I remember I tried Hati Babi Bonkus for the first time yes. um, at a restaurant. Mm. And before that, I had never liked pork liver. I feel that it has a very yeah. grainy texture and it's very, yes. um, like, bloody in terms of the flavor. It's like cockles, mm. you know, very iron, acne yeah. kind of flavor. But when I tasted that dish for the first time, I was amazed. Like, there was no graininess. Mm. And it was just so, like, um, well-seasoned, you know? Like, the spices mm. and everything just covers the, the smell of the liver. And I was very, very happy yes. that I actually tried it because now it, you know, encourages me to want to try to make this kind of thing at home, you know? So that, that is the most important thing, I think, uh, for anybody, especially for the young. Mm. Uh, that, that they actually take a bite and taste or, or not, then the recipe will just die. Mm. So can you tell me when mm. your next book will be out and, um, and what, how, how, would, how would it be different from your first book? My next book is supposed to be out this year, uh, hopefully without, if, if everything goes well. 
uh, it should be out by this towards the end of this year. It would still cover it would still cover uh, everyday cooking uh, because there's still a lot of recipes to cover. Thank you so much for doing this podcast episode with me. You know, it was really amazing finding out about your culture and listening to your perspectives. I feel that you are like a walking encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think a, a lot of it are shared memories from my parents, from, from the way they do their things. I think that's the most important thing. And I would like to say thank you for giving me this opportunity to share what I know. That wraps up another episode of Singapore Noodles. Our guest on this episode was Lloyd Matthew Tan, and he has told me that he's doing a series of private dining events with two different menus. So one will be focused on daily nonya dishes, and the other one will focus on tok panjang. So if you'd like more information, you can find him on Instagram at Parotruma, P-E-R-O-T-R-U-M-A-H. And for those of you who are new to the show, you can find recipes on our website, sgpnoodles.com. And if you are keen on receiving more cooking tips and stories, you can sign up for our newsletter at sgpnoodles.substack.com. That is S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K. Thank you once again for listening to the podcast. It's always very fulfilling and encouraging whenever I receive messages from listeners. So thank you all. And to our Chinese and Peranakan listeners, Happy New Year. And I'll catch you all next week.